What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute sin. And chapter 11, verse 6. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. Amen. You may be seated. Today is the second sermon in our series where we're going through just a few of the foundational issues that drive our church's vision and that get us excited, at least get me excited and enthusiastic about uh, the extension of God's kingdom. And last week, we looked at the hope that drives our vision. And that hope, what we called uh, post-millennialism, has been such a motivator in my life, such a faith builder in my life, that it absolutely revolutionized almost every area of my thinking and actions when I first came to that doctrine. I hope it does the same for you. I hope it's a faith builder. I hope it's a, a hope builder in, in your lives as well. But... Um, that was uh, last week. Today we're going to look at grace, and then maybe we'll look at law, apologetics, and uh, the greatness of the Great Commission. I'm not sure what order I will do those in, but just giving a few of the things that really drive us and make us unique. Now, the second issue of grace should never be taken for granted. Apart from grace, the things that God has called us to do are impossible to achieve. A lot of times we don't believe it. In fact, I'm convinced a lot of times we as Christians go about and do things thinking we're doing them in the power of the Spirit. We're really doing nothing that any unbeliever can't do. We're doing them in the power of our own arm of flesh. And we really do need to understand this uh, concept of grace. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense, his supernatural riches at Christ's expense. It's God's undeserved favor. It's his enabling. It's his empowering so that we can live the Christian life as we ought. Now, you might wonder, why do we need to devote an entirely new sermon to this subject of grace? We've just finished going through Ephesians chapter 1 and have spent several months on it, you know, going through it phrase by phrase. And that's true. That is a fantastically rich chapter on grace, and we're not even going to duplicate what we looked at in uh, Ephesians chapter 1. And my goal today is to uh, fill out the picture of grace by looking at grace in light of all of God's attributes. And then secondly, what I want to do is by using that methodology, by looking at that, this attribute of grace through the lens of the other attributes of God, I hope to show what grace is not. Um, because I think when we look at the antithesis of a doctrine, what it is not, that many times it really fills out and helps us to understand what grace is. And there's so much faulty thinking on the subject of, I mean, everybody talks about grace, don't they? Cults talk about grace, you know, Roman Catholic Church does. Everybody talks about grace, but we've got to understand what exactly is grace, and, and I think the best way to look at it is what it is, what it is not. I think it was um, 
um, who was the Labrie guy, uh, Bob? Uh, Francis Schaeffer. He was saying, you've never really truly taught something until you've taught what it's not. Antithesis is absolutely critical. A lot of people are willing to affirm truth so long as you don't criticize the error, okay? Because then that's starting to step on toes. You can believe whatever you want to believe, right? Uh, so long as there's no antithesis. And so what we're going to do today is uh, give some antithesis because some of the ways in which people define grace nowadays is impossible because it is contrary to God's very nature and being. It's contrary to his attributes. So I want to spend just a few minutes demonstrating that God's grace is consistent with his justice. Another way of saying it is that it is a just grace. Now, Isaiah 30, verse 18 says, Therefore the Lord will wait that he may be gracious to you. That's the first half of the verse. But the second half of the verse explains why God can be gracious to us. And he doesn't say that he can be gracious to us because oh, he's just tired of being a hard guy, you know, and being just and, and being tough on sin. He's just going to sweep our sins under the carpet. Uh, that is not the reason at all. Instead, he says the very opposite. He says, here's the reason he's going to be gracious to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Now you'd think, no, wait a shake. God's going to be gracious because he's a God of justice? You would think he's going to trash us because he's a God of justice. We're all sinners. But he says, no, he's going to be gracious to you. And then the very last section, for the Lord is a God of justice. That verse indicates that his grace is based upon his justice. He is exercising perfect justice every time he saves a person by his grace, every time he ministers grace into our lives. He is uh, working justice. That's Isaiah 30, verse 18. First phrase and the last phrase with an ellipsis there. We have misunderstood grace if we think somehow Jesus gets God to set aside his justice and instead to emphasize his love. Now, all of his attributes are consistent as a whole. And the way many people treat their sins is as if God really doesn't care about the sins at all. God just, eh, well, we'll just sweep them under a carpet. We'll ignore them this time. In fact, I heard a sermon one time where a guy likened God's grace <laughs> to a police officer pulling you over when you've been speeding and are, are, are sloshed, you're really drunk, and he says, well, I'll just, you know, forgive you this time, don't worry about it. No, a police officer would be in trouble, and the scripture indicates God would cease to be a just judge. In fact, God would be a sinner if he let sinners off the hook of his justice. He would be inconsistent with his very being and with his very nature. So that's not grace at all. And though Numbers 14, verse 18 says that God delights in forgiving sins, he goes on to say he by no means clears the guilty. And this is what was so puzzling to Martin Luther and some of the other reformers. Now, wait a shake. God delights in forgiving sins, but it says over here, he will by no means clear the guilty. And it's right in the same verse. What is going on here? he was saying his grace is a just grace and i dig into this a little bit uh, more detail i want you to follow with me in x chapter 3 we're going to look at a few scriptures that uh, show how simple it is for god to violate his justice he gives grace to his people exodus 23 and uh, let's look at verse 7 keep yourself far from a matter do not kill the innocent for i will not justify the wicked he's saying i want you to be good judges because I'm a good judge. I want you to pattern your justice after mine, and I never justify the wicked. Now, wait a shake. Isn't every time a person becomes a believer and becomes justified 
Isn't he a wicked person who's repented and uh, he, he's justified by God's grace? I want you to notice how stark the contrast is in the scripture, sometimes within the same verse, and there's a key that unlocks it that makes it not a contradiction, but an absolutely marvelous gem of God's grace. Look at Exodus chapter 34. Exodus 34 and verse 7. Keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty. There it is again. And you might wonder, and some of the reformers were puzzled over this. How can he forgive iniquity, transgression, sin, but by no means clear the guilty? Isn't the forgiveness the clearing of the guilty? If they're sinners, aren't they guilty? But those two things are juxtaposed in a way that is uh, very puzzling for some people. Turn with me to Proverbs 17. Proverbs 17 and verse 15 to see how strongly God feels about this. This is not just a slip of the tongue. This is something that comes from the very core of God's being. He says it's an abomination to do otherwise. Proverbs 17 verse 15. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the just, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. See, the way many people see God's justice and God's grace operating, if human judges were to imitate God, things would be a disaster in the nation. He says here, letting an ungodly person off the hook or condemning a just person, that's an absolute abomination to the Lord. It makes him disgusted. Okay, Proverbs 24. Proverbs 24, verses 23 through 24. These things also belong to the wise. It is not good to show partiality in judgment. He who says to the wicked, you are righteous, him the people will curse. Nations will abhor him. But those who rebuke the wicked will have delight and a good blessing will come upon them. Nahum 1 verse 3 says, the Lord will not at all acquit the wicked. Not at all. So if you're wicked, if you're a sinner, you're condemned under the Lord, in fact, that's what John 3, you know, if you look, read, read John 3, 16, you keep on reading, it says that uh, those who are not in Christ, they abide under the wrath of God. His wrath continues to abide on them. And so I don't think anything could be clearer than the fact that God never sweeps sin under the carpet. Um, God would cease to be God if he ceased to be just. And you know the story. Uh, it's been told many times in the past of how Jesus Christ became our substitute. He took our name. He took our sins. He went into the courtroom, as it were, was condemned for our sins, pled guilty, was judged, not only faced the torment of men, but faced the torment of the Father. And in place, he gave to us his name. By the way, that's the reason why it says in the scripture that we died with Christ and our life is hidden with Christ, and we are not our own because we've been purchased with a price. Uh, we are dead men and women and children, and dead men can't do anything on their own. As far as the law is concerned, they don't exist. They can't enter into contracts. They can't uh, buy and sell. They can't, um, they can't do anything. They do not exist. And the moment we begin to operate in our own fleshly strength, what we are saying is, I don't need to pray in the name of Christ. I don't need to heal in the name of Christ. I don't need to do my work in the name of Christ. 
or through his empowering i can do it with my own arm of flesh which means you're alive again what happens when you're alive again you're under the condemnation of the law and you're under the condemnation of god apart from christ and our life being wrapped up in him we are nothing everything that is of any good flows from christ into our life that's why paul says i know that in me that is in my flesh nothing good dwells but he says i can do all things through christ who strengthens me and so we need to take seriously this whole area of that legal imputation of christ's righteousness to us the legal imputation of our sins on christ where there was this substitution and because the law of god does not allow for double jeopardy in other words you can't punish for the same sin twice if jesus is our substitute if he bore that what god says is phil kaiser died in 30 a.d you know deb haynes died in 30 a.d and uh, therefore there is no more that the law can do against him when we take the name of christ then we are living as christians and that's why we have to pray in his name we have to heal we have to do everything in his name we have the power to live as we ought now um because of that transference that happens from us to him and him to us he can be perfectly just he didn't sweep sin under the carpet did he no he, he every sin we've ever committed and will commit was born in christ's flesh and so he takes sin very very seriously and uh, grace is not cheap it's free to you and it's free to me but it's not cheap it costs christ everything let's look at another attribute and that's it's a holy grace god exercises his grace and holiness for the sake of holiness and if he failed to he would cease to be who he is because all of his attributes affect all of the other attributes they are linked together paul says in romans 6 verse 1 that we have totally misunderstood grace if we say shall we sin that grace may abound and he says certainly not how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it grace flows from a holy god to make his people holy titus 2 verse 14 says who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people zealous for good works so here's the question are you zealous for good works that's what god's grace produces or we're, we're examining is the grace of god really at work in my life am i zealous for good works those who use the doctrine of grace to excuse their sins are not even believers they are counterfeits they are fakes and the way we know is because there are so many scriptures like titus 2 14 says god's grace always produces holiness in his people it produces a zeal and a love for his law when we take it carelessly we're not believers we are headed toward hell thinking we are believers but we are not and there are going to be many on that day who will say lord lord have we not prophesied in your name have we not done this and that in your name and he says depart from me you i never knew you how did he word it depart from me august 7 21 i believe it is many will say to me in that day lord lord have we not prophesied in your name cast out demons in your name done many wonders in your name and then i will declare to them i never knew you he didn't say i knew you once but you lost your salvation and now i don't know you no i never knew you never were regenerate i never knew you depart from me you who practice lawlessness and so his holiness his grace produces holiness within us um ephesians 2 10 says that even though we are not saved by works and that's very very clear it says we are his workmanship that's god's grace working through us we are his workmanship created in christ jesus for good works which god prepared beforehand that we should walk in them 
And so the fact that we believe that you can never earn God's grace by your works is not the same thing as saying that God's grace does not produce good works in us. Okay, first John says you're a liar if you say that you know God, but you're walking in the darkness. He says you do not have the life of God in you if you uh, claim to love uh, God, but you don't love the brethren. If there is not a transformation of your life, he says there's no evidence of grace. Grace should be progressively causing us to be more and more sanctified, hating our sin, growing in righteousness. And so we need to examine ourselves whether we are, we are in the faith. Matthew one twenty one, the angel of the Lord instructs Joseph to name Jesus, Jesus, and he, here's the reason. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So the question is, are you being saved from your sins? See, a lot of people, they don't have that conception. Grace for them is something that just makes them comfortable in their sins. Praise the Lord. I'm saved and I can live just as I want. But God says, no, you are not your own. You've been bought with a price. My grace is transforming you and it's transforming you into the image of Christ. And apart from that grace working in you, you have no sure confidence that you are the children of God. And so it's not a carnal grace. I don't know if I've said this enough times in enough ways. God's grace is a holy grace. It's a grace that produces holiness. It flows from holiness. It's characterized by holiness. Thirdly, it's an eternal grace because God is an eternal being. Now, really, all of God's attributes have to be eternal if God is an eternal being. But uh, there are many people who deny this. In fact, my son Jonathan is um, writing a, a paper uh, about the openness of God theology. Some people call it the uh, process theology. There's a number of different names uh, for it. But these people actually indicate that they believe that time is an attribute of God. God is bounded by time, and uh, he operates in time just like we do, and therefore he cannot know the future. He's not above time, okay? But there's a lot of ramifications to that view. In fact, their view of eternity, they've completely... See, we believe eternity is separate from time. Time is a created thing. They say, no, time's always here. And eternity is simply a succession of uh, points of, of time for them. But uh, let me read to you 2 Timothy 1, verse 9. This says that grace was given to us before there was any time. Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. Let me read that last phrase again. Grace which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. Now, this gives some people real heartburn because they don't want grace given to them from eternity. If it was given from eternity, that means God knows the future, and it means that the future is certain. The future is determined. And that's one of the reasons why openness of God uh, theologians like um, Clark Pinnock and Gregory Boyd deny that God can know the future. They insist God has to be in time, bounded by time, uh, just like we are. They want grace given after we have done something. Otherwise, they feel like they're not in control. Well, let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. We aren't in control, are we? Uh, we're not in control at all. And you know what? God gives us these doctrines to humble us, to make us realize we are dependent upon him. In him, we live and move and have our being. Our very breath comes from him. God's grace didn't come to you because you believed and repented. You believed and repented because God's grace came to you. Praise the Lord. I mean, 
That's the only way we could. We believed through grace, it says in Acts. And uh, this scares some people because it means that grace is dependent upon God's character alone and upon nothing that is within us. Now, we call this aspect of grace unconditional election. Unconditional election. It means that when God elected his people, he didn't look down the corridors of time and say, okay, it looks like this guy's got faith. This guy is going to come to me, and so I'm going to go ahead and choose them. God, if he was to look down the corridors of time, he'd say, they're all chasing you know, their own desires, and they're all uh, turning away from me. They're all rebelling. Who am I going to give grace to? Because there isn't anything in them that I can see that would make me want to choose them. And so God chooses individuals, and because of his grace, Chosen and given to them, they come to faith. Let me read you a passage from Romans 9, verse 11. It says, So then, it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. He says it's not based on anything that's in us, not on our will, where it goes. It's based entirely upon God. On Jacob and Esau, it says, For the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. He says the reason that he made that declaration before they had done any good or evil, before they'd even been born, is so that people would realize his grace had nothing to do with anything that was inside of them. What it had to do with was God's sovereign free pleasure, where he delights in saving men and women. Now again, this scares some people because they think, that grace is determined by eternity, not in time. But you know what? When you think about it, the other is scary, far more scary. Uh, to think that time is, I mean, that grace is bounded by time means that God can be blindsided. And that's exactly what process theologians have, have said, that God is taken by surprise many times, and there are things that have frustrated his plans and his purposes uh, because uh, uh, his, his desire was to give people free wills so that they would not be robots. By the way, we don't believe people are robots either. Uh, I think that's a mis misunderstanding. But as a result, he can't control things in history, and so that would be a scary thing because here's somebody, maybe God wants to come to faith, and he would have come to faith except for some chance event came along and he dies early and so he goes to hell and there's another thing that frustrates God's purpose maybe a thousand years from now uh, something else will frustrate God's purposes in terms of my persevering uh, if things are outside of God that determine uh, the issues then God's not the sovereign but anyway we'll get to that under sovereignty this is what Romans 11:5 speaks of as the election of grace it is not determined on us. It's determined on God, which means if God does not change, we can have a real security and assurance in him. Let's look at the related concept. This is point number D, God's sovereign grace. Now, sovereignty is one of the attributes of God. I think most everybody acknowledges God is sovereign. But this has to affect all of his attributes. Many people believe that God is sovereign in providence. God is sovereign in history, but they say, but he's not sovereign when it comes to salvation because otherwise men would be robots. Men have to have a free will to choose God. But the question then comes, well, how could he be sovereign in, in history then and in providence because that's dealing with human wills all the time as well, right? And so there's not a consistency there, but 
God never violates the will. Men freely choose what they want to choose, uh, but uh, they are only going to want to choose sin and rebellion apart from God's grace changing them. Anyway, let's deal with this whole issue of sovereignty. Um, Sovereignty means God can give his grace when and where he pleases. In a nutshell, that's what it means. He's not under obligation to anyone. He gives it when and where he pleases. And what has happened in my theology when I was growing up and in the theology of many others is that uh, the almighty free will of man has superseded the free will of God. And I think those are the only alternatives. Either man is sovereign or God is sovereign. I don't think there can really be uh, another alternative. God's sovereignty means God is in charge. He determines where, when, and to whom he will exercise his grace. And one of the sure signs of whether you are self-centered in your relationship with God is whether or not you delight in the sovereignty of God or whether you hate it. Romans 8 says, when the Spirit of God works in your heart and transforms your life, you find security in God's sovereignty. You find delight in God's sovereignty. The very next chapter, Romans chapter 9 says, if the flesh dominates, you're going to hate the sovereignty of God because it's in, a, it's in opposition to what God does. Now, I've already read some from Romans 9. I think this is uh, one of the strongest chapters in the sovereignty of God, though there is a bunch of other ones as well. And I want you to turn there with me, and we're going to read a, a few verses that indicate that he is sovereign, not just in other attributes, but his sovereignty affects his attribute of grace as well. Romans 9, 14 and following. Okay. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. Now that's a succinct definition of the sovereignty of grace. Sovereign grace means God can give his grace to whom he will or withhold his grace from whom he will. Verse 16, so then it is not of him who wills nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. He's saying it's not man's free will that's the key issue in salvation. It's God's free will that is the key issue in salvation. For the scripture says, <clears throat> for the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this purpose, this very purpose, I have raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? Now, this is one of the most frequent arguments against the sovereignty of God. Well, that just makes men robots. People, if that's the case, nobody can resist his will. And Paul preempts that argument immediately by saying, no, 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 you've totally misunderstood the sovereignty of grace. You're resisting God's will right now. What do you mean, who can resist God's will? That's the only thing that unregenerate men do. Verse 20. But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Apart from God's grace, that is all that unregenerate men can do is resist God. And the more that God removes his restraining hands, the more they plummet into hardening of their own hearts. Now, in Romans 1, Paul has already dealt with this issue. And he has talked about God giving men up unto a depraved mind, right? And when he gives them up, immediately, of their own nature, they became, become hardened 
in their hearts. And here's the way that I've illustrated it uh, many times, and uh, the old-timers here know this illustration quite well. But how can God control sinful events like the crucifixion? And he controlled, you know, many, many details of the crucifixion without being the author of sin, without being uh, tempted by sin or tempting others by sin, none of which God does. And here's the way that, that I've illustrated it. The only thing that holds this book from falling to the ground of its own nature, gravity will pull it to the ground. The only thing that keeps it is the restraining power of my hand. I don't have to slam it down to the ground for this to fall to the ground. All I have to do is remove my hand and of its own accord it will fall to the ground. Well, the same is true of unbelievers. The scripture says that their depravity, their nature will of its own accord go into every form of sin and rebellion. And what is restraining them and what is enabling them to be much better than they could be, to have righteousnesses, outward righteousnesses, which are still as filthy rags because of the disposition of their heart. But he says what's restraining them is God himself. He keeps them from becoming worse than they are. Now, in Romans 1, he says, there are times where they've resisted, they've resisted, they've resisted. Finally, God says, okay, I'm going to give them up. He withdraws his hand, he gives them up to a depraved mind, and they become increasingly hardened. And it talks about homosexual behavior, all kinds of different things that people can get into. It manifests itself in different ways. But it's just like what he talked about with Pharaoh. Who hardened Pharaoh's heart, Pharaoh or God? And the answer is both, <laughs> right? God, most of the times it mentions God hardening Pharaoh's heart. So God did it. But in Exodus, it also mentions Pharaoh hardening his own heart. And, and they're both true. You see, the situation is God restrained his heart from being as hard as it could be. He didn't deserve this restraining grace. But when God gave him up to his own depraved mind, God's not at fault for his sin. He immediately begins to plummet so who's hardening his own heart? It's Pharaoh hardening his own heart. But why did he harden his heart? It's because God let him up. And so both really are true. Now, that's, that's background that, that Paul has already uh, uh, given on this uh, issue. But I find it interesting that Paul doesn't appeal to that in his argument here. He assumes that. He knows that the objector isn't interested in this answer. The objector, his idea is God's not fair to save some and not to save others and so he's dealing with the fairness issue and he's saying look guys if you want god to be fair we're all going to be in hell forget this fairness thing that's scary let's not talk about fairness because we'll be all in deep trouble if we talk about that let's keep reading in romans 9 beginning at verse 21 does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor what if god wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory even us whom he called not of the jews only but also of the gentiles paul is saying that god has the right to bestow his grace on unworthy sinners and uh, to make he's using the analogy here of clay this, to make it into a beautiful beautiful vase that's a vessel fitted for glory. Did that vase, did that clay deserve to be made into that? No, it's just clay, it's dirty. And he says he has the right to make out of that same clay a vessel fitted for destruction. God has the right to do either. Really, 
he has the right to send everyone to hell, just like he did with the angels. There are elect angels, there are non-elect angels, but he didn't give anybody a second chance. Right. Once they fell, they were lost. Now, that is such a humbling doctrine, and I think that is the beauty of that doctrine. It prepares people for grace, because apart from grace, there can be no I mean, apart from humbling, there can be no grace. In James, it says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And it says he gives more grace, uh, you know, to those who humble themselves in the sight of the Lord. Now, there are some Reformed people who have been kind of cautious about this whole area of predestination. They say, oh, man, that's a tough doctrine. You ought to only talk about that with mature believers. But don't do it with young believers. Don't do it with unbelievers. That's totally contrary to the methodology of Scripture. Who was the ones that Jesus spent most of his time talking about predestination with. It was unbelievers. And the reason he talked so much about predestination and God's right to judge or to, or to uh, save is because he wanted to humble people and bring them to the place where they are ready for grace and, 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 and God's purposes uh, over and over in the Scripture are seen to be much the same. Humbling the pride of man. Now, let's go on to point E. We have totally misinterpreted the sovereignty of God if we believe that it shows God to be selfish and self-serving. You know, see, people say, well, that, that's what a horrible God, that God would make all of these people that are going to hell just so that he can save some. Well, you can turn that right around for the Arminian and say, now, God knows uh, who, that there are going to be many people who are going to hell and just so that people can have this free will, he's willing to have so many people go to hell. I mean, it, it fits either shoe, you know, either way. What we have to say is God is just in whatever he does, and whether it goes against our grain or not, we must submit ourselves to the Scripture. But anyway, here's a doctrine that can help you out in giving a balance on this, and it's called the doctrine of aseity, A-S-E-I-T-Y. Maybe I wrote it down in the outline there. And one of the chapters... And I should have written down last night. I, I, I forgot to write down references on all of those, so you're going to have to write your own in. But Exodus 3 is a fantastic chapter dealing with the aseity of God. I am that I am. God declares himself to be the self-sufficient one, the one who has no needs whatsoever. He is the great I am. In fact, there is so, uh, so much of a self-sufficiency that he overflows in providing for the needs of other people. And so... God says, are you hungry? Well, I'm the great I am. I am the bread. Are you thirsty? I am the living water. God can supply for any need that we may have, and it's because of his aseity, because he is totally self-sufficient in his being, that he needs absolutely nothing. Well, that doctrine can help us not only see the freeness of his grace, that he never runs out. doesn't matter how many needs people have, he is continually flowing in his nature to give grace to other people now that's glorious because we many times wonder you know how much can i really ask of god god says you can ask for, to, for the fullness of your need and above and beyond uh, what your need is uh, and i will flow but this doctrine also helps in the objection to his sovereignty i've heard people say you know he's not fair and this shows selfishness on the side of god and i think this is a great way of objecting to it and saying no, it's impossible for God to have any need. Now, many Arminians say the reason God created men is because God needed fellowship. Uh, God needed love to be expressed to him and needed somebody to be able to love. Well, realize we're not Unitarians. God is 
made of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and throughout eternity, he had perfect fellowship, perfect love. Father loving the Son and the Spirit, the Spirit loving the Father and the Son. And so there were no needs. He was self-sufficient unto himself. Well, the logical result of that is if he has absolutely no needs, it's impossible for him to be selfish. <laughs> Selfishness of its very nature is thinking only of my needs, you know, and feeding your own needs. God doesn't have any needs, which means that when he saves people, he does it out of the overflow of his heart to those people. And uh, it's not because he needs those people. When he condemns people, again, it's out of the overflow of his heart for his, for his uh, elect. And so if you look along those lines, I think it helps to realize, no, it's not out of selfishness. God has no needs. Charles Spurgeon once said, what amazes me is not that God does not choose everybody, but rather that he chose me. And I think that's the perspective we ought to take. Lord, why didn't you send all of us to hell? I cannot understand how it is that you would save a wretch like me. And that will cause us to appreciate the generous, self-sufficient character of God. Okay, God's grace is also wise. It's a rational grace. This is the sixth attribute, the wisdom of God. Now, some people accuse Calvinists of believing in fatalism. Oh, we absolutely reject fatalism. Uh, fatalism has no plan. It's not wise. It's arbitrary. And we believe that grace was given according to an eternally wise plan. Michael Horton said, even though election means that salvation is determined by God, it is the antithesis of fatalism. Had God merely provided salvation for everybody and then stepped back to let the chips fall where they may, then you would have fatalism. In other words, if God does not de determine the success of salvation, we're back to the meadows with Doris Day singing, que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. But precisely because God has determined what will be, we have a salvation based on God and not on, on, not on fatalism. He's saying the irony is that it's the process theologians who believe in fatalism because God is not controlling the circumstances. It's chance that's controlling the circumstances. Well, chance is really behind fatalism. It's just as determined, you know, but it's not an all-wise God, an all-loving God and an all-good God who is behind the determinations. And so that is definitely not a good direction to be going in. It's precisely because of the administration of God's grace that it's wise, it's perfect, that we can have confidence in our day-by-day -day growth in grace. You know, we might wonder from time to time and be tempted to think, you know, I, I'm so messed up, there's no way God's grace can handle me. And God says, no, I know my sheep. I know my sheep. And I say to you, sheep, my grace is sufficient for you. And so his wisdom can make us realize, okay, God's rational. He's got a plan. I'm included in this plan. His grace is sufficient for me. Okay, I'm going to trust him, and I'm going to step forward and uh, take his word at face value. It's also a loving grace. 2 Thessalonians 2.16 says, God our Father who loved us by his grace. Now, there's an ellipsis in there as well, but the grammar is very clear. It's our Father who loved us by his grace. And over and over in the scripture, it indicates God's love is possible because of his gracious heart and his grace is possible because of his loving heart. Okay, the two are wrapped up together. So never, never think of God in an impersonal way, you know, where, okay, uh, you know, God's the, the big vending machine and I'm putting in my dimes or my, my credit card and out comes the things that I need. We've got to realize God is a personal being, a, a God who loves us. And we need to relate to him 
as um, as a, a, a person who loves us. He delights in those who reciprocate his love. Point H, he is a generous grace. Now, it's related to a CD, but this really goes beyond that. God does not have to be manipulated in order to give of his grace freely and fully. doesn't have to be manipulated. In fact, I want you to turn with me back a couple of pages to Romans 5. And uh, I want to look at some verses that show the abundance of his grace because, again, there are many people who think God is holding out on them. Why is it? I'm going through so many struggles. God says, no, I'm not holding out. I I I love to be generous with my people. Look at Romans 5 and verse 15. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense, that was Adam and his rebellion, by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man Jesus Christ abounded to many. So he's saying, think of all of the evil effects that came through Adam's sin. And that's pretty pervasive. He said, grace comes much more and grace abounds to many. Now take a look down at, at um, let's see, what's uh, the next verse? Verse 17. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Again, notice the much more and the abundance of grace that he mentions. And then look down at verse 20. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Now, there are some people's lives where sin has abounded and uh, they just are so overwhelmed. It just just makes them shudder to think about their past and they can't get past the past. God says, look, look to my grace. Don't look to yourself. I mean, even as Christians, so many times we are are kept from advancing because we're looking at how bad or how good we are. Either one is just as bad. We're looking at ourselves. He's saying, look to me. No matter how much your sin has abounded, my grace can abound much more, much more. So the generosity of God is, uh, is toward us. Now, it's also a kind grace. Ephesians 2, 7 speaks of the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now, if you've got an image of, of God as being, you know, kind of like a mafia guy who's giving you 100 bucks, but man, he, he's going to expect 1,000 by the end of the year. And if you don't come up with it, the brass knuckles, you know. Uh, you got a wrong idea of who God is. God not only gives the $100, he prospers your investment of that $100. And as you give, he gives more. You can never outgive God. And so don't think of God in the sense that, boy, he's going to extract every pound of flesh he can get out of you. No, God is generous. Everything you have of any value has come from him, even, even our very physical bodies. Uh, come from him and he's kind he's gentle he's considerate he's loving a bruised reed he will not crush it says he does not extinguish a flickering flame you know sometimes we feel like our flames about ready to go out lord i don't think i can handle much more god's not going to pluck it out he's he's going to fan it he's going to say no I, I i'm for you i love you and he does love his own okay powerful grace too many people are discouraged because they forget this and uh I, I've probably read this to you. I'm, I'm sure I've read this, uh, this, this to you in the past. Well, maybe I haven't. 
But it's Harold Kushner. He's a rabbi who wrote the book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. And I, I just can't get over, <laughs> I can't get over this perspective. Here, here's what he says. Bad things do happen to good people in this world, but it is not God who wills it. God would like people to get what they deserve in life, but he cannot always arrange it. Even God has a hard time keeping chaos in check and limiting the damage that evil can do. Man, that would be depressing to have a perspective on life like that because, I mean, we, we're getting blindsided, but if you think God gets blindsided as well, it's like you feel pretty hopeless. You know, that's exactly the direction that process theology, openness of God theology is, is causing people to head. It, it, it's heading in a direction where God is constantly being blindsided and there is no comfort whatsoever in that. Let me give you a couple of scriptures that I forgot to put in your outline. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. And I won't read it, but it's a marvelous passage dealing with God's, the power of God's grace being perfected in his weakness, being sufficient. Here's another one, Ephesians 3, 7. The grace of God given to me by the effective working of his mighty power. It's It's powerful. Ephesians 1, we've looked at the incredible power that God manifested toward us. Now, I'm not going to spend much time on it, but the question of the perseverance of the saints, I think, it ties in with uh, God's attribute of immutability. God is, can be counted on. He's not going to be changing up one day, down the next day, you know. No, he is a reliable God, and his grace is a reliable grace. And he says that what he has begun, he will complete until the day of Jesus Christ, Philippians 1 and verse 6. And so it speaks of this immutability. Point L is that God's grace is a consistent grace. Now, what I'm getting at here is that there is a unity in the Godhead where what one member of the Trinity does, the others are automatically involved in as well. You cannot, uh, you cannot um, separate what Father, Son, and Holy Spirit does. They are united and, con uh, and uh, consistent which says, yes, we acknowledge Scripture is pretty clear. God chooses some, and he doesn't choose others. There is an elective purpose there. But Jesus, his purpose was to die in order to save everyone. And I think we have to say no, because what the Son does, the Father does. What the Father does, the Son does. In fact, Jesus says, if I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. John 10, verse 37, there's got to be a unity of purpose and desire and passion for all three members of the God. In fact, it doesn't even make any rational sense to say that Jesus intended to die to save Pharaoh, who was already burning in hell, and he knows can't be saved. If you're an Arminian and believe that God has foreknowledge of the future, which Orthodox Arminians do believe, you'd have to say the same thing because God knows who is and who isn't. How can you say that he intends to try to save those whom he knows will never be saved? I mean, it just doesn't make any rational sense. So, well, I guess I was going to say not to be insulting, but that is insulting, isn't it? <laughs> but it, it's Scripture. It is Scripture. It's not just pure logic, and it takes away the comfort of the gospel. Now, we could take more time. I'm not going to, and looking at other attributes. I think I've given you plenty of meat to chew on, and here's what I would encourage you to do. People are looking for different methods for meditating on Scripture. What we have just done here is a process of meditation that you can do, maybe over a course of several weeks in your devotions, 
where you're looking at just one attribute of God, wanting to worship God, understand who he is, but you look at that one attribute through the lens of all of the other attributes, and that'll help to bring a lot of scriptural issues to the surface. So I'd recommend that for your meditation. But let me just quickly zip through what practical difference this makes in our lives. First difference, I've already hinted at, is that it will produce humility, produce profound humility in Nebuchadnezzar, humility in David, humility in, in uh, Moses, you know, most humble man. Well, he was the man who experienced the most grace in his life. It produced it in Paul, who saw himself as the chief of sinners. Now, why would Paul think of himself as the chief of sinners? He's got plenty of people in Corinth and in other places that have got all kinds of messed up lives, but he is so overwhelmed with his sin, he can honestly say, I see myself as the chief of sinners. I believe it's because the closer to the light of God's presence that you get, the brighter that light shines in your heart and exposes the cobwebs that are there. Now, other people may not see any sins because outwardly you're without blame. But let me tell you something. You see them so strongly because the light of God's presence exposes the inward impulses and desires. In fact, this has been the testimony of so many people is the closer they have drawn to God, the more overwhelmed they have been with their own unworthiness and with the sinfulness of their heart. So the nice thing about that, you say, why would that be nice, you know, to see how sinful you are? Well, what it does is it realizes I'm secure, not because of my behavior, my performance. I'm secure because of Christ. And secondly, what it does is it helps you to not worry about what other people think about you. You know, they may criticize you. And even if their criticism is off the wall and it's wrong, your attitude can be, you know, I can let that go by because if they really knew how bad I was, <laughs> this is nothing. <laughs> and so you're not going to worry about trying to impress people, right? You're here before God. God knows how bad you are. And if other people were honest, they would know that it doesn't matter how many criticisms come, they're just going to be arrows that fly right through and have nothing to stick because you're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You're secure in him. You can go forward and say, yes, I know. I'm a sinner like you, you, you say that I am. Would you please pray for me? This is something I'm working on. And um, I'm thankful that God's grace is going to conquer it one day. And so that you don't have to impress people. But it also gives us humility in how we treat others because the more we see our own unworthiness, the less judgmental we're going to be of other people. <laughs> you know, we're going to be far less. When we see, you know, these three fingers pointing back at us, we're going to be far less likely to be pointing the finger at others. We recognize what we're going to do is we're going to say, you know, brother, I'm concerned about you. I've gone through some of these same struggles, and I know I'm a sinner as well in other areas, but I'm concerned. You're destroying your marriage. Or you're destroying this, and here's what God's word has to say, and therefore it's not you and him. It's God's word that's bringing uh, light to his situation. Humility. The second benefit is appreciation for all that God has done for you. When you see your depravity, and you see that all that God has poured out and his eternal grace, his generous grace, all of the attributes linked in there, it's going to cause your heart to well up in appreciation for what he's done. A third benefit is that it will stir up our hearts to worship. And over and over again in the scripture, it links God's grace leading the scripture writer to praise or worship. So if you've ever wanted to grow in your ability to worship, start studying grace, right? And start experiencing God's grace in your life. Uh, Romans 11, you know, after he's been talking about God's grace to Jew and Gentile, his heart just wells up. I mean, he just cannot help but explode in a, in a, a period of worship and praise 
uh, to the Lord. Martin Luther said, we cannot worship rightly until we understand our own depravity, the bondage of the will, and that grace from start to finish, from predestination to glorification, rests on God and on God alone, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Uh, Jesus said that God's purpose in seeking people by his grace was so that they might worship. Well, you would expect that God's going to be stirring up worship in our lives if we've got grace in our lives. He seeketh such to worship him. Another result the scripture highlights is it produces holiness and service. And, uh, and because I talked about that earlier quite a, quite a bit, I'm not going to elaborate, but just personal testimony. It was when I came to the doctrines of grace and God's sovereignty, and, and I really understood the dimensions of this grace that God produced in me such a passion for service that it overcame my fears, such a desire for holiness that it overcame the, 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 the lust of my flesh. Yes, there's still sin, you know, that comes in, but it was the thing that drove me. Grace produces this in our lives, the more we understand it. Um, here's another one. Historically, it's, it's been a tremendous impetus to evangelism and missions. You know, people say, oh, if you believed in the sovereignty of God, you wouldn't even be involved in missions. No, no, no. Historically, that's never been true, and I'll tell you why. It's because where grace comes, God ensures that there's going to be a burden uh, for missions. I don't think, in fact, why don't you turn with me to Romans 9. I don't think you could have a stronger passage on God's predestinating power, both in rejecting some and accepting others, receiving others, then Romans chapter 9, and yet look at the passion that God supernaturally wrought in Paul's life. Romans 9, beginning at verse 1. I tell the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness. You, you know, if this wasn't Paul, you'd think, okay, he's ready to tell a big fib here. But Paul is saying, no, this is going to sound so preposterous. I've got to assure you, this is no exaggeration. I'm not lying. I'm telling the truth. When I say that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. He's saying here, I, I can't explain it, but I'm not lying when I say I have such a burden for the Israelites that daily I wish I could go to hell if they could be saved. That's the degree of burden that Paul had. <clears throat> You can't do that yourself. You cannot have that kind of a burden for the lost. And, and, and Paul had that because he had God's grace so powerfully working in his life. And so when I look at myself and I realize, okay, I don't have the degree of burden for the lost that Paul had, I have to, I have to admit, okay, I don't have the degree of grace in my life that Paul had because God's grace has always historically produced the passion for evangelism. You know, the Reformation. And a lot of people don't realize it was one of the greatest times of evangelistic outreach ever. Uh, in, in France alone, I think in one year, they planted, it was over 2,000 churches. Uh, they went to Brazil. They went all over the place. When you look at the, the, um, uh, the Great Awakening, uh, you look under... And George Whitfield, and you look at some of the great missionary outpourings, there were these, these Calvinistic people who had such a burden to see God's glory lifted up and to see people won to Christ that you just have to say their rich understanding of grace produced in them a rich desire for, for evangelism. Point F, assurance. It definitely gives us assurance of our standing in Christ. 
You know, if we felt that our, our standing with God was always in jeopardy because of our failings, we wouldn't have any assurance. Paul assures us in Romans 8 that everyone who has been predestined will be called. Everyone who is called will be justified. Everyone who is justified will be glorified. They call this the golden chain of salvation. You cannot break the chain because he, of that word everyone, all, okay? And why can he have this, this absolute confidence no one will lose their salvation, that everyone called will end up being glorified in heaven? Well, it's because from start to finish, our salvation is founded on God. It's not founded on us and what we do. And so it gives us tremendous assurance. And so Paul goes on to say in Romans 8, you know, is Satan fighting against you? Well, if God is for us, who can be against us? Is Satan accusing you and terrifying you, you know, by pointing out all the sins that are in you? Just point Satan to Jesus and don't worry about it. He says, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. And so you point to him. It's not based on what happens in history. It's based on God's elective purposes. If we're condemned, like Luther was, say, by the church. Hey, he says, the church didn't die for you. Jesus died for you, and he's risen, and he's interceding for you. Verse 34, there may be persecution and other things that can separate you from family. But in verses 35 and following, he says, nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Ah, that's an assurance, tremendous assurance. And then finally, it gives us power in prayer. The more we see God's grace in operation, the more we have confidence to ask of God. Horton, Michael Horton says, I'm always puzzled by the question, why pray for somebody's salvation if election is true? After all, if election is not true, and God is waiting on pins and needles, hoping along with us that folks will use their free will properly, then surely that's reason enough to leave prayer out of it. We might expect God to say, look, I appreciate the attention, but there's nothing I can do. It's out of my hands. I gave the person a free will. And now we'll just have to see what happens. On the other hand, if we see that God is a God who can break through the toughest heart, the toughest person out there, we're motivated to go to him because he's the solution, right? And so we're going to pray through because God says if we ask anything that's according to his will, which will? It's the revealed will, not the decretive will. It's his revealed will. That means he's stirring up our hearts to lay claim to these promises. And we just start claiming the promises and say, Lord, here's two or three. We're gathered together. We're claiming your word and we believe your word. God says, I'll do it. That's the kind of generous God we have. And he says he can break through into the toughest situations that are out there. Now, I've only outlined two keys to knowing the grace of God uh, richly, and it's the same at the beginning of our Christian pilgrimage as it is in the middle and at the end is repentance and faith. It's looking downward, and it's looking upward to his grace. And <clears throat> uh, he says, God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Here's what J.I. Packer once said. He said that our view of God is like a pair of old-fashioned scales. Okay, you had those scales, you know, that are weighted like that. You put something on one end and it goes down and put something on the other end and it goes up. And he says <clears throat> that, that when God goes down in our estimation, we go up. When we go down in our estimation, God goes up. And he says that's the only way it can happen. It always happens that way. The more self-esteem you have, the less you esteem God the more you realize we are nothing, nothing in me, there is nothing good that dwells in me, the more your esteem for God goes up and your comfort in God goes up. Uh, Michael Horton in his book, Putting Amazing Back into Grace, <clears throat> says, never before 
Not even in the medieval church have Christians been so obsessed with themselves. Never before have people entertained such grandiose notions about humans and such puny views of self. And I think that is an, a correct indictment of the spirit of our age today. We need a reformation. We need uh, to bring the message of the reformation to the churches because it's through that message I think that the Lord may, in fact, spare this nation because judgment begins at the house of God and we're already seeing judgment in the house of God, everybody doing that which is right in their own eyes. But if God brings reformation to the church, well, maybe there's hope that he will bring reformation uh, to our entire nation. And so that's what I would encourage you to do. Pursue humility. That's going down in your own eyes. And pursue faith, because when you've got humility, you're looking up, right? You're looking up toward God, and you're saying, Lord, even though I cannot do anything apart from you, I praise you that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's grace and grace alone. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your grace. I thank you so much that you have uh, poured out your grace above and beyond that which we could even ask or think. Father, you are the God who uh, even stirred our hearts to even think about you in the first place, to give us faith, to make us uncomfortable with our sins, to draw us into joy and gladness in your presence. You are the God who finishes that which you have begun. And it is our desire, O oh Lord, to look to you, to honor you, and to be seeing ourselves being diminished as you are exalted. May you be exalted evermore in our lives as we are sanctified by your grace. And to you be the honor and the glory and the praise forever. Amen.